Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference Post-Mortem, Part 2. Last episode, we went through the October General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We went through the women's session, we went through the Saturday morning and afternoon sessions, and we went through the priesthood session. Now, I did not comment on every talk, only on those talks that I thought had something worth commenting on. Tonight's episode will deal with the talks of note in the Sunday morning session and the Sunday afternoon concluding session of General Conference. The first talk that caught my eye was by Elder Donald L. Hallstrom. It is titled, Has the Day of Miracles Ceased? Not only did this talk catch my eye, I actually received not one, but two texts from people that I know while Elder Hallstrom was giving this talk, asking if I were paying attention to conference because they felt sure that Elder Hallstrom must have listened to my Radio Free Mormon episode dealing with Elder Bednar's talk about having faith not to be healed because what Elder Hallstrom seemed to be doing was a response to that episode. You will recall that that episode talks about Elder Bednar's talk specifically and more generally talks about the phenomenon in the LDS church that really there are no more miracles in the church. The miracles are people who die. There are no priesthood miracles that are talked about where people are actually healed miraculously. And the title of his talk, Has the Day of Miracles Ceased, comes from Moroni chapter 7 and it's part of a sermon where the question is asked, Has the day of miracles ceased? If the day of miracles has ceased in the context of the sermon, it is a very, very bad thing. Because according to the Book of Mormon, miracles existing in the church are a sign that the church is true. And not only a sign that the church is true, but a sign that the church has the faith in it necessary for the miracles. Because only if a church or a people have faith necessary to miracles, do they also have the faith necessary to salvation. I talked about this in a little bit more detail in the prior episode dealing with Elder Bednar's talk, but that's where this title comes from, Has the Day of Miracles Ceased? Now, what Elder Holstrom is trying to do is he is trying to say, no, the Day of Miracles has not ceased. We still have tons of miracles in this church. Not only do they exist, they abound in this church. They're everywhere. Unfortunately, by the end of his talk, what we find out is that Elder Holstrom's argument completely undercuts his position. And really, at the end of it, what he's saying is, no, there really are no more miracles in the church. The day of miracles has ceased. We're not the true church. End of story. Drop curtain. Will the last person leaving the conference center please turn out the lights? Elder Holstrom starts off his talk with a story about a miracle. And it is the strangest story I have ever heard about a miracle because there doesn't really seem to be any miracle here. He's talking about a guy named Clark who he says he met over a year ago. And he tells a story about how Clark was out with a group on a church outing. They climb Mount Shasta in California. And while Clark is up there on top, he trips and he falls off a cliff. And he breaks his neck, he breaks his back, he breaks his arms. And over two months later, he's still in a back brace, a neck brace, and he has braces on his arms. And that, according to Elder Hallstrom, is just the beginning of the miracles. Well, That's a strange miracle to start off with, falling off the top of a mountain and breaking your neck and your back and your arms, but that's what Elder Hallstrom says. I am not making this up. Here's what he says. One of the first people to the top that day was Clark. After a brief rest near the edge of the summit, he stood and began to walk. As he did, he tripped and fell backward over the edge of a cliff. Suffering a free fall, 
of about 40 feet and then an out-of-control tumble down the icy slope for another 300 feet. Remarkably, Clark survived, but he was severely injured and unable to move. Then Elder Hallstrom goes on. The miracles Clark experienced during this traumatic event were just beginning. So for Elder Hallstrom, a guy tripping and falling off the top of a mountain is a miracle. I think what he's trying to say is the miracle is that he survived, if I want to try and be charitable toward him. But that will happen to different people. A lot of people will die. A small minority will live. It's a miracle in the sense of it's an unusual thing to have happen under the circumstances. But it happens all the time to different people, Mormon and non-Mormon. And notice that at no point is any kind of priesthood involved. There is no priesthood administration involved with Clark. At least none that is mentioned, and obviously none that works. So now, after saying the miracles Clark experienced during this traumatic event were just beginning, Elder Hallstrom goes into a series of coincidences. And here is where Elder Hallstrom begins to redefine miracles. Now, when I was brought up in the church, a miracle was something that happened that was out of the ordinary. It was something that was not expected. It was something that changed the normal course of events. A priesthood blessing on someone who has a terminal illness. They're miraculously cured. They get up, they take up their bed, they walk, as we read about in the New Testament. We don't have those anymore in the church. Instead, what we have is a redefining of miracles, not as something that is done that is supernatural, extraordinary, something that would never be expected in the normal course of events, but rather coincidences are becoming the new form of miracles in the LDS church. And this is why sometimes the LDS God is called the God of the Lost Keys. Because you can pray to him, he'll find your lost keys for you, but uh, he's not going to do anything about you tripping at the top of Mount Shasta and falling off a cliff. Sorry, he's busy finding someone else's lost keys. Wasn't watching what was going on with Clark at the top of the mountain. Whoops, there he goes over the edge. So here are the coincidences that Elder Hallstrom now relates. Some of the first to reach him happened to be a group of hikers that included mountain rescue guides and emergency medical professionals. They immediately treated Clark for shock and provided gear to keep him warm. Okay, well, that's nice. That's a good coincidence. Is God working through that? I don't know, but not in the traditional sense of a miracle. It's a coincidence. He goes on, this group also happened to be testing a new communication device and sent an emergency request for help from an area where cell phones could not get a signal. Is that a miracle? Or is that a coincidence? A small helicopter was immediately dispatched to Mount Shasta from an hour away. After two dangerous but unsuccessful attempts to land at an altitude that pushed the limits of the aircraft and struggling with treacherous wind conditions, the pilot began a third and final try. Why is it the final try? Because it works. He begins a third and final try. As the helicopter approached from a different angle, the winds happened to change, and the aircraft landed just long enough for the group to quickly and painfully squeeze Clark into the small compartment behind the pilot's seat. So you can see there's three coincidences here that Elder Hallstrom is referring to as miracles. He goes on, When Clark was evacuated at a trauma center, tests revealed that he had sustained multiple fractures in his neck, back, ribs, and wrists. Okay, hang on a second. With all these happenstances that are going on and all these nice coincidences that are working in Clark's favor, if these coincidences are being orchestrated by God, would it have been too much to ask for God to simply make it so that Clark did not trip and fall off the top of the mountain in the first place? So we've got a horrible thing that happens to Clark, and then all these nice coincidences that happen, we're supposed to ignore the fact that Clark fell off the mountain while God was looking elsewhere. 
And now God is so involved in this, he's orchestrating who's in the group of hikers that happen to come up next and find him, that they happen to be testing a new communication device and can get a signal out, and that the helicopter cannot land on the first try, it cannot land on the second try, but on the third try, God changes the wind direction and now the helicopter can land. A simple coincidence by God of not having Clark fall off the mountain in the first place would have saved a lot of trouble by God orchestrating all these other coincidences later on. There are more coincidences. A renowned neurotrauma surgeon happened to be on duty that day. He is at this hospital only a few times a year. This doctor later stated that he had never seen anyone sustain so much damage to the spinal cord and carotid arteries and live. Clark was not only expected to live, but to return to full function. I hope he does. I mean, I don't know who Clark is. I've never met the man. But apparently, over two months after this happened, he was still in a neck brace, a back brace, and arm braces. I hope he's back to full function. It is interesting, though, that Elder Hallstrom says he met Clark for the first time a year ago, so that would have been October of 2016, that Clark had fallen off the mountain two months before that, which would have been around August of 2016. So it's been 14 months since this incident happened, and a year since Elder Hallstrom met Clark when Clark was still in all the braces. But, for some reason, though Elder Hallstrom says Clark was not only expected to live but to return to full function, Elder Hallstrom does not tell us how Clark is doing now. Just that he was expected to live and return to full function. I hope Clark is doing better, but I'm getting the idea from this failure to provide that information, which would obviously be there if it were positive, that maybe Clark is not doing so well. In other words, if Clark had returned to full function, I am sure that Elder Hallstrom would have included that in his talk. Elder Hallstrom says, Describing himself, the doctor, as agnostic, the surgeon said Clark's case went against all his scientific learning about neurological injuries and could only be described as a miracle. Well, maybe Clark's doctor did say this. What it does seem, though, is that Elder Hallstrom never heard this directly from the doctor, but is relating probably what Clark or his wife told Elder Hallstrom that the doctor said to them two months before. So this is now third-hand information, and we have to be a little careful in taking it at face value, especially when Elder Hallstrom's talk is about miracles happening. As Clark and Holly finished relating this intense account, I found it difficult to speak. It was not simply because of the obvious miracles. Now, once again, see, the obvious miracles are all the coincidences. These are the new miracles in Mormonism. Coincidence equals miracle. It was not simply because of the obvious miracles, but because of a greater one. I mean, there's a greater miracle than falling off a mountain? <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, okay. Apparently, there is a greater miracle than falling off a mountain, and Elder Hallstrom's going to tell us what it is. The greater miracle is, I had a profound impression that Holly, the wife, and each of the five beautiful children who sat in the living room around their parents have such faith that they could have accepted whatever the outcome might have been that day. And still, they would have spiritually prospered. So in other words, what Elder Hallstrom is saying is the greater miracle is that he believes that Clark's wife and kids, even if Clark had died, that they'd still be active in the church. And he thinks that is a greater miracle, that they had enough faith that even if Clark had died, like most people probably would do, once they fell off a mountain, that they would have retained their faith in the church. But now Elder Hallstrom comes to a point in his talk where he asks some very important questions. 
Now, he's not going to do a good job of answering them, but I got to give him credit for asking these questions in the first place. Here's what he says. In pondering the experience of the Fales family, that's their last name, Fales, sounds like falls, as in falls off a mountain, I have thought much about the circumstances of so many others. What about, and here's the questions, listen closely, what about the innumerable, faith-filled, priesthood blessing receiving, unendingly prayed for, covenant-keeping, full of hope Latter-day Saints, whose miracle never comes? That is a good question, and you put it very well, Elder Hallstrom, at least in the way they understand a miracle, at least in the way that others appear to receive miracles. Now, here's where he starts fudging, and here's where he's going to start changing the definition of miracles. What we all think of as miracles is what the church teaches miracles are, that miracles come as a result of faith, they come as a result of receiving priesthood blessings, that they come as a result of prayer, that they come as a result of keeping our covenants, that they come as a result of our having hope that these miracles will occur. But what happens to all those Latter-day Saints who have all of these things and yet whose miracle never comes, at least in the way they understand a miracle, at least in the way that others appear to receive miracles? He rephrases the question in this way. What about those who suffer from profound afflictions, physically, mentally, emotionally, for years, or for decades, or for their entire mortal life? What about those who die so very young? Those are very, very good questions. What about all those people? Where is their miracle? Well, what Elder Hallstrom is going to end up doing is saying, we're all receiving miracles. We're just not receiving the miracles that actually heal anybody or make anybody better anymore. And once again, notice that Clark falls off the mountain. There's a lot of coincidences that happen that are definitely in his favor. But over two months later, Clark has not been healed. And you know darn well he's received numerous priesthood blessings. None of them have worked. He's still in the back brace. He's still in the neck brace. He's still in the arm braces. Priesthood blessings have not healed him. And so the very nature of miracles themselves must be redefined. Elder Hallstrom now says, Do good people and their loved ones have reason to ask the question posed by Mormon, Has the day of miracles ceased? And I think this is what made those two people who texted me wonder if he actually did listen to my Radio Free Mormon podcast and if he was actually trying to give a response to it. I assured them that I did not think that it was the case that Elder Hallstrom was listening to this podcast, but on the off chance that he is, Hi, Elder Hallstrom. This is a shout out to you. And here's the point in the talk where he pivots. My limited knowledge cannot explain why sometimes there is divine intervention and other times there is not. But perhaps we lack an understanding of what constitutes a miracle. So here's where he's going to change it. He's been leading up to it. He's been hinting at it. But now he's going to go full bore with this complete reinterpretation of what miracles are. Miracles are not being healed. Miracles are not being made better, no matter how faithful or righteous you are or how many priesthood blessings you receive. Instead, a miracle is something other than being healed or being made better. Elder Hallstrom recognizes this. Often we describe a miracle as being healed without a full explanation by medical science or as avoiding catastrophic danger by heeding a clear prompting. Yes, that's how we describe miracles in the LDS Church. Thank you for recognizing that, Elder Hallstrom. But now he's going to say, however, 
You knew a big but was coming at the end of that sentence, didn't you? However, defining a miracle as a beneficial event brought about through divine power that mortals do not understand gives an expanded perspective into matters more eternal in nature. This definition also allows us to contemplate the vital role of faith in the receipt of a miracle. Well, that's a bunch of gobbledygook basically saying, hey, what I'm trying to do is I'll switcheroo here and a miracle is no longer a miracle. Now a miracle really is something completely different than a miracle. And he's going to go on to say that miracles are things that happen every day. Then he quotes some scriptures talking about how faith is necessary for miracles and gets around to quoting Elder David Bednar. Similarly, Elder David A. Bednar, I'm not sure what the A stands for, but I can guess, once asked a young man who had requested a priesthood blessing Remember this guy? It's John and Heather from the prior episode who had requested a priesthood blessing. David Bednar asked the young man, quote, If it is the will of our Heavenly Father that you are transferred by death in your youth to the spirit world to continue your ministry, do you have the faith to submit to his will and not be healed? Yes, Elder Hallstrom actually quotes one of the stupidest statements that Elder David A. Bednar or any church leader has ever said in the history of the world. And he does it in general conference. After quoting David Bednar, Elder Hallstrom expands that question to include everybody. He says, Do we have the faith not to be healed from our earthly afflictions? Okay, wait a second. Th this is the same problem I had with Elder David Bednar. Do we have the faith not to be healed from our earthly afflictions? You don't need any faith not to be healed from your earthly afflictions. The entire message of the New Testament and even the Doctrine and Covenants, yes, and the Book of Mormon, is that you need faith to be healed. You don't need any faith not to be healed. The people who are not healed are the people who don't have the faith. It's very elementary, but this whole concept on which Christianity is based and has been for 2,000 years, is turned on its head by Elder David Bednar, and now he's being echoed and liked by Elder Hallstrom in General Conference. And the reason they're turning it all on its head is because there are no miracles in the LDS Church, and they're scrambling for some way of explaining why that is. So now, we need to have faith not to be healed. And he asked the question, do we have the faith not to be healed from our earthly afflictions so we might be healed eternally. See, here's the trade-off, right? You've got these horrible earthly afflictions that you suffer with for your whole life, regardless of how faithful you are, regardless of how obedient you are, regardless of how much tithing you pay, regardless of how many priesthood blessings you receive. But do we have the faith not to be healed from them so that we can be healed eternally? With the idea in mind that these horrible afflictions that we suffer with in mortality are somehow going to turn to our benefit in the eternities. That they are preparing us for exaltation in the eternities. Elder Hallstrom goes on, A critical question to ponder is, where do we place our faith? Well, we place our faith in Jesus Christ, but that's not really what he's talking about. He goes on, Is our faith focused on simply wanting to be relieved of pain and suffering? Well, that's obviously from a guy who hasn't experienced a lot of pain and suffering. Is our faith focused on simply wanting to be relieved of pain and suffering? Believe me, Elder Hallstrom, there's a lot of people going through intense pain and suffering who, yes, do want to simply be relieved of it. In fact, a lot of those people end up taking their own lives because they cannot deal with the pain and suffering through which they are going and because God seems completely absent and asleep at the switch when it comes to answering their prayers. Is our faith focused on simply wanting to be relieved of pain and suffering, or is it firmly centered on God the Father and His holy plan 
and in Jesus the Christ and his atonement. I'm not sure why those should be considered mutually exclusive. That's a non sequitur, Elder Hallstrom, just pointing that out. Faith in the Father and the Son allows us to understand and accept their will as we prepare for eternity. So once again, here's why there's no miracles in the LDS Church, because we become much more a fatalistic church. What does happen to us that is bad, the pain and suffering we go through, is what God wants us to go through. We're not supposed to be healed from it. It's supposed to prepare us for eternity. Therefore, the fact that nobody gets healed from these things through priesthood blessings is the way it's supposed to be. Nice try, Elder Hallstrom. Now he says, Today I testify of miracles. This is really getting crazier and crazier. Today I testify of miracles, the miracles of falling off a mountain and breaking your neck and your back and your arms. Today I testify of miracles. Here's where he totally dumbs it down. Being a child of God is a miracle. Okay, this is pathetic. Everybody in the entire world, including a third of people who were never born into this world, are children of God. Everybody is a child of God. Any time in the history of the world, everybody who exists on the earth is a child of God. But you see what Elder Hallstrom is doing. He's trying to say that's a miracle. So there are always miracles because everybody's a child of God. So how is it then that the Book of Mormon asks, has the day of miracles ceased? The Book of Mormon has the idea that if they have ceased, then you're in trouble and you're not the true church and you don't really have faith in God necessary to salvation. Elder Hallstrom tries to get around that by saying, miracles are here all the time. So the answer to that question is always going to be, no, the day of miracles hasn't ceased. That doesn't make any sense when you line it up with what the Book of Mormon is really asking. Today I testify of miracles. Being a child of God is a miracle. Receiving a body in his image and likeness is a miracle. So now just being born for crying out loud is a miracle. Now, in one sense, certainly getting born is a miracle in a naturalistic kind of way. But using miracle in a secular kind of way is not the same kind of miracle as what Mormons are taught miracles are, which are exactly what Elder Hallstrom already mentioned, which is being healed without a full explanation by medical science or as avoiding catastrophic danger by heeding a clear prompting. That's what a miracle is. Now he says being a child of God is a miracle. Receiving a body in his image and likeness is a miracle. The gift of a Savior is a miracle. Well, the gift of the Savior has been here ever since he came. And according to the Book of Mormon, it applies retroactively to Adam and Eve. So that's always been present too. The atonement of Jesus Christ is a miracle, which I think is sort of saying the same thing in another way. The potential for eternal life is a miracle. So what Elder Hallstrom has done is he's dumbed down the definition of miracles to the point where it is completely meaningless from an LDS point of view. And he's done this because there are no miracles in the church. So because there are no miracles in the church, he has to say everything's a miracle. And when everything is a miracle, nothing is a miracle. He concludes his talk. While it is good to pray for and work for physical protection and healing during our mortal existence, our supreme focus should be on the spiritual miracles that are available to all of God's children. So he just totally spiritualized miracles. Mormonism is based on the idea that God actually intervenes in people's lives, either through faith or through priesthood, and is authorized servants to cause miracles to happen. Now he's changed these into spiritual miracles, which are not miracles at all. Our supreme focus should be on the spiritual miracles that are available to all of God's children. 
And then he concludes saying, all of us have equal access to these miracles. Well, of course we do, because it happens to everybody. If receiving a body in his image and likeness is a miracle, then everybody who's listening to this podcast, including the guy behind the microphone, me, has access to these miracles. He states, we are living a miracle and further miracles lie ahead. This is potentially the worst talk of General Conference, but it is a talk that is given because the church is in desperation for miracles. They have no miracles to speak of. The only miracles they talk about end in death or severe injury, like poor Clark falling off the mountain. And because of that, they have to redefine miracles as something other than miracles. That was Elder Hallstrom's mission. That was his goal. And that is what he did in his talk. The next talk I wanted to mention was Bishop Waddle's talk in the Sunday morning session. It's called Turn to the Lord. Even though it's called Turn to the Lord, the subject matter of the talk is once again about miracles of healing in the church. He is going again to say they're present, but of course he gives two examples of situations where there are no healings. The first has to do with a story he tells from 1998 when he and his wife were going on a trip to Hawaii. The night before our flight to Hawaii, our four-month-old son, Jonathan, was diagnosed with a double ear infection. Ouch, I had a single ear infection once. That hurt. And we were told that he could not travel for at least three to four days. I laid my hands on his head, and by the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood, I blessed him to be well, and he was healed immediately. That would be a miracle. Unfortunately, that's not what Bishop Waddell says. He says, The decision was made for Carol to stay home with Jonathan while I would make the trip with the rest of the family. No healing. This is an obvious story where there should be a healing, there should at least be a blessing. I'm sure there was a blessing, it didn't work, so Carol has to stay home, but there's no healing. He goes on to a World War II story. On June 6, 1944, D-Day, Hiram Shumway, a young second lieutenant in the U.S. Army, went ashore at Omaha Beach as part of the D-Day invasion. He made it safely through the landing, but on July 27th, as part of the Allied advance, he was severely injured by an exploding anti-tank mine in an instant. His life and future medical career had been dramatically impacted. Following multiple surgeries, which helped him recover from most of his serious injuries, Brother Shumway never did regain his sight. How would he respond? Well, he would respond by asking for a priesthood blessing and having his sight restored, but that's not part of the story. Once again, there is no miracle. Why do they tell these stories where there's no miracle? Because they don't have any miracle stories to tell, and they've got to redefine miracles as something else. It's how people respond to these bad things happening to them. Following three years in a rehabilitation hospital, he returned home to Wyoming. He knew that his dream of becoming a medical doctor was no longer possible, but he was determined to move ahead, get married, and support a family. Now, stories like these do have a positive purpose. They do teach us that people can overcome difficulties in their life, and by sheer dint of their own effort and refusal to give up, they can make their way and make things happen. And that is very positive, and it's a good message. But it's not a miracle. He doesn't get his sight back. Instead, he perseveres in spite of the fact that he remains blind for the rest of his life. Then he talks about a number of different challenges that we can have. The death of a loved one, a bitter divorce, perhaps never having the opportunity to marry, a serious illness or injury, and even natural disasters. So all of these are things that can cause challenges in our lives. But he doesn't talk about the power of the priesthood or any miracles to cure these things. Instead, he says this, Although each change, he calls these things changes or challenges, may be unique 
to our individual circumstances, there is a common element in the resulting trial or challenge. Here's the miracle. Hope and peace are always available through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, the first point I want to make is no, hope and peace are not always available through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why people kill themselves, because hope and peace is not always available through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The second point I want to make is that this is, once again, a dumbing down and a redefinition of what constitutes a miracle. Instead of a miracle constituting being healed from one of these things, instead, it's just hope and peace coming to you while you are going through the trial and not being healed. Bishop Waddell finishes, The atonement of Jesus Christ provides the ultimate corrective and healing measures to every wounded body, damaged spirit, and broken heart. That is a bunch of malarkey. The ultimate corrective and healing measure. Yes, once again, the healing measure is not to be healed. The healing measure is not to be healed. Remember, faith not to be healed is greater than faith to be healed. This is the same kind of message that's being repackaged and put in another talk. And once again, we have another talk where nobody gets healed, but instead people don't get healed. And this is the wonderful, ultimate, corrective and healing measure to every wounded body, damaged spirit, and broken heart. I'm sorry, Bishop Waddell, but Radio Free Mormon is not buying this anymore. Next, we come to what is quite likely the best talk in General Conference. It's by Elder W. Craig Zwick. The talk is called, Lord, Wilt Thou Cause That My Eyes May Be Opened? And here he gives a wonderful talk. He delivers it well, and the substance and message of his talk are excellent. And mainly what he's getting at is, so often we see other people around us, and we are so sure of what it is that motivates them, and why they're acting the way they are, and we are so quick to judge them according to our perceptions of who they are, that we never take the time to find out from them who they really are, to see who they are, not just who we think they are. And a lot of times, who they really are is very different than our perceptions. He gives a great talk back from when he was a mission president involving a new missionary in the field. I had my eyes open to looking beyond what I could see while serving as a mission president. A young elder arrived with apprehension in his eyes. As we met in an interview, he said, dejectedly, I want to go home. I thought to myself, well, we can fix this. I counseled him to work hard and to pray about it for a week and then call me. He's just being a total mission president. That's what mission presidents do. This is going to work. We're going to fix this kid. A week later, almost to the minute, he called. He still wanted to go home. I again counseled him to pray, to work hard, and to call me in a week. In our next interview, things had not changed. He insisted on going home. Elders Wick says, I just wasn't going to let that happen because he's the mission president. He knows what this kid needs. He sees who this kid is. He knows he just needs to pray and work hard, lose himself in the work, and he will not want to go home anymore. I just wasn't going to let that happen. I began teaching him about the sacred nature of his call. I encouraged him to forget himself and go to work. But no matter what formula I offered, his mind did not change. It finally occurred to me, and here's the important part, it finally occurred to me that I might not have the whole picture. It was then that I felt a prompting to ask him the question, Elder, what is hard for you? So finally, Elder Zwick comes to the point of recognizing maybe there's something about this elder that I don't know. Maybe there's a reason he wants to go home that I am not assessing or giving him good advice on. Elder, what is hard for you? What he said pierced my heart. President, I can't read. This is the lesson that Elder Zwick draws from this. It's an important lesson. The wise counsel 
which I thought was so important for him to hear, was not at all relevant to his needs. What he needed most was for me to look beyond my hasty assessment and allow the Spirit to help me understand what was really on this elder's mind. Now, it's really not the Spirit. He has to put it that way to make it church-approved. But it was simply him asking a question, Elder, what is hard for you? The Spirit had nothing to do with it. The missionary says back, President, I can't read. That's simple communication between one human being and another. But it helped him understand what was really on this elder's mind. He needed me to see him correctly and offer a reason to hope. Instead, I acted like a giant demolition wrecking ball. I see this as a very positive message in general conference, not to be judging everybody according to your own standard, but to find out who they are, to find out where they're at. Now, of course, this elder learns how to read and becomes a successful missionary, so there's a happy ending from a Mormon point of view to the story, but nevertheless, that message, I think, is extremely important, and Mormons as a group could learn a lot from this story. My fear is that it would be looked at as saying we need to find out where people are, not where we think they are, but only so that we can get them to where we think they should be, which is active in the church or a successful missionary. He goes on to say some other things which I think depart from that conclusion. We often separate ourselves from others by the differences in what we see. We feel comfortable around those who think, talk, dress, and act like we do, i.e. white shirts, ties, kneeling dresses, no shoulders exposed, and uncomfortable with those who come from different circumstances or backgrounds. In reality, don't we all come from different countries and speak different languages? Don't we all see the world through the enormous limitations of our own life experience? So here, he's broaching a universality among people, saying, really, we shouldn't judge other people as being from other languages or backgrounds, because in the big picture, we all speak different languages and are from different nationalities and backgrounds. We are all the same in that we're all different. I think that's a positive point he's making, too. Now, he doesn't get an A+, plus; he only gets an A, because he does go on to say, to accept and love others does not mean we must embrace their ideas. Now, that much is true. I get that. I agree with that. But he goes on to say, obviously... Truth mandates our highest allegiance. So here he puts allegiance to truth over accepting and loving others. I think that is contrary to the New Testament. I think it's contrary to the Book of Mormon, where King Benjamin says in the oft-quoted passage that when we are in the service of God, we are only in the service of the truth. No, he doesn't say that. He says when we are in the service of God, we are only in the service of our fellow beings. Service to fellow beings in the Book of Mormon is the same as service to God. Allegiance to truth is really not more important. It's not really our highest allegiance. And to say that it is higher than our allegiance to accept and love others is problematic for me in this talk. Now, I want you to know that I do recognize I quoted that verse from King Benjamin's speech in reverse order. The actual verse does read that when you are in the service of your fellow beings, you are only in the service of your God. But, of course, if A equals B, then B equals A, so it should apply both ways. This idea by Elder Zwick that our primary allegiance is to truth sounds good on its face, but upon further reflection is the source of many of the evils that have occurred in Christianity as well as in other religions for the past 2,000 years. Jesus expressly taught against this idea in one of his most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10. We're all familiar with it. We talk about it with some frequency in the church, but we really don't go beyond the surface. 
This is not just a parable about two Jews who would not help a guy and one non-Jew who would. Instead, this parable directly confronts and attacks the idea promoted by Elderswick that our allegiance to truth trumps our love for our fellow man. I'm going to read a bit from this parable from Luke chapter 10. I don't want to lose you here. I'm going to make this quick, but what I'm going to say now is the most important thing I'm going to say in this podcast. In fact, it may be the most important thing I say in any podcast. Verse 30, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now that half dead part is critical to what comes next. This guy is beaten up so bad that he looks like he's dead by the side of the road. He's not over there moaning. He's not over there calling for help. He is unconscious. He is bloody. He looks as if he is dead. The parable goes on. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. Now that's of course a Jewish priest. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So this priest not only does not help this guy, who's looking like he's dead by the side of the road. Instead, he makes it a point to not even come close to him. And likewise, a Levite. Now, this is also a Jewish religious official. He's not as high up as a priest, but he serves in the temple. He doesn't actually do the sacrifices, but he does all the other kind of stuff related to the sacrifices that don't involve actually performing the sacrifice. And this Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, the guy who looks dead, and pass by on the other side. He does the exact same thing that the priest did before him. And then finally, of course, a Samaritan, who is neither a priest nor a Levite, but someone who's hated of the Jews, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him. And then he bound up his wounds, took care of him, took him to an inn, paid for his lodging, and so forth. The important part to know, to understand this parable, the way Jesus was teaching it, is that the priest and the Levite knew that according to the law, i.e., according to the truth, that if they went over and touched a guy who looks dead, if he actually is dead, they have made themselves ritually unclean under the law of Moses. Once again, under the truth, as they understood it. And if they made themselves ritually unclean by touching a dead body, they have to go through a purification process during which time they cannot serve in the temple. So what's going through their mind and what the original audience of this parable understands immediately because they know the whole framework of the Jewish law is that the priest and the Levite do not help this guy because if they did and he turns out dead, then what they have done is made it so they cannot serve in the temple for a period of time. They cannot serve the Lord in the temple doing and preparing the sacrifices that are part of the law of Moses. So from their point of view, the priest and the Levite, their allegiance to the truth and even their allegiance to God trumps their love for their fellow man. This is one of the fundamental reasons that Jesus gives this parable, to teach in no uncertain terms that our loyalty to the truth should never trump our love for our fellow man. So when Elder Zwick says that our first allegiance should always be to the truth, not only is he contradicting King Benjamin from the Book of Mormon, but he's contradicting Jesus from the New Testament, and specifically the parable of the Good Samaritan. Taken a little bit further, that our first loyalty should always be to the truth has resulted in millions of mischiefs in this world, in the name of God, among many religions, not only Christianity, 
but Islam as well. On September 11, 2001, when Muslims flew airplanes into the Twin Towers, killing thousands of people, they did it because they believed the same thing that Elder Zwick is saying. Their allegiance to the truth, as they saw it, trumped their love for their fellow man. When the Westboro Baptist Church protests and pickets funeral services, they are doing the same thing. They are heeding Elder Zwick's advice that our first allegiance must be to the truth, and our allegiance to the truth trumps our love for our fellow man. And closer to home, this same idea is what can allow Elder Oaks to say that if he had a homosexual son, the homosexual son could come and visit him maybe at his house, but he could not stay the night, and God forbid that Elder Oaks would ever be seen in public with his homosexual son, because then other people might think that he supports the idea of homosexuality. Elder Oaks can only say such incredibly unchristlike things because he believes that his allegiance to the truth is greater than his love for his fellow man, or in this case, even his love for his own son. So as I say, this one comment by Elder Zwick in his talk largely undercuts everything else he has said before, but he does say, obviously, truth mandates our highest allegiance, though it should never be a barrier to kindness. Okay, well, that sort of makes it a little bit better, but not all the way. Oh, then he tells a story about a poor 16-year-old kid who gets into a car wreck and does not get a priesthood blessing and is healed. Instead, emergency personnel finally arrived, but a few hours later, Bo died. See, it's the same thing all the time in these conference talks. People have terrible things happen. They die. There is no healing for them. But I do want to give Elder Zwick credit for what I think may be the best conference talk. Admittedly, there's not a lot of competition out there. The bar is pretty low, but still, he clears it with room to spare. Then President Eyring comes through with his talk, Fear Not to Do Good, which in some ways appears to be more of an extended advertisement for the charitable endeavors of the LDS church members with their yellow shirts, their helping hand shirts, which he mentions a couple times in his talk. He goes back to the Teton Dam breaking back on June 5th, 1976. A wall of water came down. Thousands fled from their homes. Thousands of homes and businesses were destroyed. Miraculously, Okay, wait a second. See, this is the thing again. The Teton Dam breaks. Thousands flee their homes. Thousands of homes and businesses were destroyed. But miraculously, fewer than 15 people were killed. You see, the deal is that it's probably not that much of a miracle to the 15 people who were killed or to their families or to the people who lost their homes and businesses in the flood. But he's still going to pull a miracle out of this thing. One man's miracle is another man's disaster. And this story is a good illustration of that. Helping people who are down on their luck or who have suffered from some kind of disaster is a good thing. It is a Christ-like thing, but it is not a miracle. And yet that's what President Iring wants to call it. That miracle of quiet courage and charity. I'm quoting him. That miracle of quiet courage and charity, the pure love of Christ, has been repeated over the years and across the world. So now miracles are people helping out other people. I'm sorry, but once again... This seems to be a theme in general conference. Miracles are no longer miracles. They're just things that happen every day within the Mormon church, outside the Mormon church. They happen to everyone at some point. It's a miracle to help other people now. He goes on, if you read the journal entries of those pioneers, you see the miracle of faith driving out doubt and fear. So there's miracle of faith. Everything is a miracle except miracles. And he goes on, I saw that same miracle. This is a favorite phrase of his talking about something that's not a miracle 
and then going on to say, I saw that same miracle somewhere else, and then describing something else that's not a miracle. But apparently President Eyring thinks that if he says the word miracle enough, people will think, hey, these must be miracles. I saw that same miracle a few short days ago in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma in Puerto Rico, St. Thomas in Florida, where Latter-day Saints partnered with other churches, local community groups, and national organizations to begin cleanup efforts. So now cleanup efforts are a miracle. Jeez, President Irene. Could you be any more dense? <laughs> oh my God. I understand this guy actually used to teach at an institution of higher learning. Really? I guess not in theology. Oh, here's where he gets to the Helping Hands t-shirts. I have heard a report that some have started calling the Latter-day Saints who are wearing yellow Helping Hands t-shirts the Yellow Angels. <laughs> the Yellow Angels. Oh my God. I don't know if I'd want to be called the Yellow Angel. I mean, just don't eat that yellow snow. One Latter-day Saint took her car in for service, and the man helping her described the spiritual experience he had when people in yellow shirts removed trees from his yard. So that's the spiritual experience. And then he said, they sang some song to me about being a child of God. Okay, now hang on a second here. What is going on, really, with these yellow angels, these Mormons in the Helping Hands t-shirts? Are they out there to help people for the sole purpose of helping them? Or could it possibly be that they're actually out there helping people with the underlying intent to convert them to the Mormon church? Well, we all know as Mormons that that's their intent, right? That's why they wear the t-shirt so they can be identified as Mormons out there helping. Jesus says something about not doing your good works before men, but you know, that probably doesn't apply here. Maybe that part of the Bible wasn't translated correctly. And then after they help this guy remove trees from his yard, they turn around, they get together, and they sing to him, I am a child of God. It's like Christmas caroling in August. Are you kidding me? They're down cleaning up and they're singing, I am a child of God. Could they be any more obvious that what they're doing is not motivated by a love for their fellow men? What they're doing is being motivated by their desire to get people to join the church. Oh, and here's another one. This is a pure miracle that uh, President Eyring's going to talk about. Here's his pure miracle. Another Florida resident, also not of our faith, related that Latter-day Saints came to her home when she was working in her devastated yard and feeling overwhelmed, overheated, and close to tears. The volunteers created, in her words, a pure miracle. They served not only with diligence, but also with laughter and smiles, accepting nothing in return. So that's the pure miracle. Once again, it's the service helping other people out. That's your miracle nowadays. Once again, I will say, it's a good thing. It's a Christ-like thing. But please don't be calling it a miracle, President Eyring, because it's not. And really, the LDS Church should not be using natural disasters as a PR campaign and as a missionary opportunity. Now, getting off that particular subject, something else interesting arises during this talk. President Eyring's talking about the last days, and he kind of slips here when he says this part. He says, Faithful Latter-day Saints have increased their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Book of Mormon as the Word of God and in the restoration of priesthood keys in His true church. That increased testimony has given us greater courage and concerns for others of God's children, but the challenges and the opportunities ahead will require even more. So he's talking about the challenges and the opportunities ahead. Here's where he lets it slip. He begins the next paragraph. We cannot foresee the details, but we know the larger picture. We cannot foresee the details. Okay, um, President Eyring, aren't you one of the 15 guys that the membership of the church just got done sustaining as prophets, seers, and revelators? 
and yet you're admitting you don't know anything about the future. In fact, you don't say you don't know, you say you can't know. We cannot foresee the details, but we know the larger picture. What's the larger picture? It's what every Mormon is taught in the correlated doctrine, right? That's the only picture he knows is what is taught in the Mormon church and has been for decades. He goes on, we know that in the last days the world will be in commotion. Okay, that's out of the scriptures. We know that in the midst of whatever trouble comes, whatever trouble comes. Aren't you supposed to be able to tell us what trouble's coming? Really? This is supposed to be a prophet, seer, and revelator talking? We know that in the midst of whatever trouble comes, the Lord will lead faithful Latter-day Saints to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And we know that the Lord's true disciples will be worthy and prepared to receive him when he comes again. Okay, so we know the larger picture, which is what everybody knows, but we can't foresee the details, and we can't see really what trouble is coming. This is one of those places that happens every so often in general conference, where general authorities let it slip that they have no powers that they claim. We cannot foresee the details. This is one example that popped out to me in this general conference. Another time I remember this happening was back in the October General Conference of 2001. It was between sessions that the United States had commenced its invasion of Afghanistan. It was October 7th, 2001. It was a Sunday. And I distinctly remember Gordon B. Hinckley as president coming out at the beginning of one of the sessions and announcing this fact to the audience. What he said then was, None of us can see the future. He said there's no way of knowing where all of this will lead. And I remember thinking, even as he said it, wait a second, I thought that you were a prophet. I thought you were the prophet, but you're telling us you can't see the future? You don't know what the future holds? It's beyond your ability? You don't have that gift? I had just gotten done raising my hand to sustain you as a prophet, President Hinckley. And now you're out here telling us that really you're not a prophet after all? That was a memorable experience for me and one of the many turning points in my life that led me from where I used to be as a Mormon missionary to where I am now. That concludes our discussion of the Sunday morning session of General Conference. There was a great deal to talk about in the Sunday morning session. There will also be a great deal to talk about in the Sunday afternoon session. I'm going to stop this podcast now, and I will release a separate podcast on the Sunday afternoon session of General Conference, hopefully next week. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.